Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that invites us in from the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all that had happened. In the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? They just stood there, long-faced, like they had lost their best friend. And then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during the last few days? Jesus asked, What has happened? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. It is now the third day since these things took place, and some of the women of our group have completely confused us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, so thick-headed... So slow hearted. Why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scripture to us, they didn't waste a minute. They were up and back on their way to Jerusalem. The story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Theologian and scholar Leonard Tweet tells a story of his two kids coming home from school one day to tell him that they had both studied birds in their respective classes. First, Dr. Sweet's daughter explained how she had studied with a biologist from the University of Washington who came and spent the entire day with them to teach and tell them everything there was to know about birds. Next, Dr. Sweet's son told him that his class spent the afternoon with a conservationist from the Audubon Society. Immediately, Dr. Sweet assumed that his daughter had gotten the better end of the deal. After all, she had a scientists provide an entire day of education. But as the two continued to tell their stories, Dr. Sweet slowly began to change his mind. He realized that the birds his daughter studied under the professor were dead birds. To be more specific, dead birds in a laboratory. And to be even extremely explicit, dead birds in a metal dissection pan in a laboratory. 
Because things do have to be dead in order to be dissected. His son, on the other hand, spent his afternoon with a naturalist studying live birds. In order to do that, they had to go to where the birds lived. They had to get on a bus and travel to where the birds were residing in order to stand under the birds. Because it's hard to understand something if we don't stand under it. Unlike the students in the lab, the kids who rode the bus to where the birds lived were the ones that had to be moved. They were the ones who had to be changed in order to truly see and experience the birds. Now, I am grateful for all the ways we have learned and are learning to do the higher critical and analytical work of the Bible. In fact, that critical and analytical work is part of my job description. I am a student of those ways and a teacher of those ways, those dead bird in a dissection pan kind of ways, if you will. But that dead bird in a pan understanding should not come at the expense or exclusion of standing under the living Bible, experiencing it alive and in the wild. God's story is a living story. It has been given to us not only to dissect and analyze objectively, but to also experience it subjectively, to stand under it, to stand within it, to walk it out, to get our feet in the dust as we journey along the path. Now, to be clear, it's not our job to make God's story come alive. It is alive. It is a story that has been told retold, engaged, acted out, and entered into for thousands of years by real flesh and blood people. People who have handed us this living story. People who have loaded us up on buses and driven us to where the story resides so that we can stand under it, among it, and within it. People who share their part of the story and invite us into the spaces where our story will integrate, commingle, and unite. And I think Luke is one of those people. Luke, telling his story of the two disciples encountering the resurrected Christ, is pointing us and inviting us into the spaces on the road to Emmaus. I think this is precisely why this specific story has been told and retold, engaged, and acted out. This story has been handed to us, not so that we can treat it like a dead bird in a pan, dissecting it to get to the objective truth, but also so we can actually enter into the space of the story. Space is created by wonder. Now, what do I mean by wonder? I mean unexplained, weird stuff. This story is full of unexplained, weird stuff. I like it. I mean, the two disciples don't recognize Jesus. That's weird. That's unexplained weird stuff. And if you'll allow me a little dead bird in the pan moment of digression, I'd like to explain to you just how weird it is. In our distances of time and language and culture, we may assume that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus are two men. There are a couple of English translations of the Bible that actually use the words two men on the road to Emmaus. But that's not actually what the text says. That's an interpretation, one to which many of us have probably been subjected. And there's a bit of a problem because the text actually says two of them 
not two men. Furthermore, there's some context and cultural clues that we miss simply because we don't know what to look for. We only get one of these, these two disciples' name, Cleopas. The traveling partner of Cleopas, his fellow disciple, remains unnamed. But if we notice that when the two disciples get to Emmaus, they invite Jesus into their home, the place where they live together, that seems to indicate a couple. And if we keep digging a little bit, we'll find that in the 19th chapter of John's gospel, John tells us that there were three Marys present at the crucifixion of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Jesus' disciple. And, wait for it, Mary, the sister of Jesus' mother and the wife of Clopas, which is another way of saying Cleopas. Moving past the fact that the first century Jerusalem was apparently lousy with women named Mary, that's an incredible detail. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, is also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Presumably her sister-in-law, meaning Joseph's sister, since it's unlikely that daughters from the same family would have the same first name. So according to John, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, is at the crucifixion. Then in Luke, Cleopas is walking home with someone immediately following the resurrection, someone with whom he shares a home, a home into which they invite Jesus into a meal. He's walking home with his wife. The two on the road are Cleopas and Mary. Now that's fascinating in that it reveals and causes us to confront our gender bias and it's generative because it allows our daughters and our sisters and our mothers to see themselves on the road to Emmaus too, which is important. And that reality gives us plenty of good stuff with which we should wrestle. But if we're talking about wonder, if we're talking about weird, unexplainable stuff, this is really weird because the two on the road to Emmaus, the two people that don't recognize him, they're not just random disciples from the crowd that followed Jesus. This is his aunt and uncle. His family don't recognize him. That's weird. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on when your family doesn't recognize who you are? That's wonder. This isn't something that we can dissect in a laboratory to get at. This is standing under something that is alive and wild. Space is created by wonder, and that unexplained weirdness invites us into the story. Weirdness like this invites us to get out of the lab and get into the wild. It asks us to see ourselves in the ambiguous gaps of the story. Consider this. Every person that encounters the resurrected Christ doesn't recognize him. And in each of those instances, those who don't recognize him come devastatingly close to missing the most important moment of their lives. Some of the most important moments in human history because they don't recognize Jesus. That is really weird. What's going on there? Why, does that, why is that the case? Is this an ambiguous gap into which we are invited to step? Is that unexplained weirdness there to create space for us to enter in? Is this where we can enter into the story? 
Maybe, as Shannon Pater wrote, the obscured details allow the story to serve as a mirror to us. The gaps in the detailed narrative help us to locate our reflection and therefore our place on the road of heartbreak. Perhaps we have felt blindsided in times of suffering and anxiety, unable to see something that was right in front of our face. Maybe our expectations of what should happen have caused us to miss what was happening. Has our misery or pain or doubt or fear caused us to hurry blindly along the road? When have we failed to recognize that we are actors in this story and not observers? These weird, wonderful spaces invite us into the story. And here's another weird, wonderful, inviting space. When Mary and Cleopas did not recognize Jesus after he has wrestled the scriptures with them, after he has broken the bread and offered it to them in their home, when they finally realize who it is that they're walking, talking, and dining with, he vanishes. That's weird. That's wonder. That's an invitation. And I can definitely identify with that. I can see that happening to me. I can tell Mary and Cleopas, me too. I get that. I've been there. I know what it's like to experience a God that is elusive, fleeting, a God that dances on the edge of my awareness. The New Interpreter's Bible says that if we're honest, we must confess that God's presence is never constant, steady, or predictable. The mystery of a God that exceeds all expectations is that God is always exceeding. The transcendent is transitory. As C.S. Lewis wrote about Aslan, he's on the move. Surely we can all understand this vanishing moment in the story. We can all perceive God's presence in fleeting moments. We grasp for it in a glorious moment, a moment that makes us aware of the burning heart within us, and then before it can become ordinary, before we can get used to it, it moves. Space is created by wonder, and that unexplained weirdness invites us into the story as we enter in our experiences, our smaller stories, our eyes to see are opened. In the case of the road to Emmaus, I think Luke hoped his audience would step into the space of this story and be reminded to expect the unexpected, but to look for it in their normal lives. Yes, the appearance of the resurrected Christ on the road is an extraordinary event. It's fantastic and complex. It's, it's full of the unexpected and wonder. But at the same time, it's simple. It takes place within the rhythms of ordinary life at the normal pace of walking, eating, and talking. Jesus didn't appear to Mary and Cleopas at the temple or in synagogue. He met them on the road as they were walking home, something they had done many times before. Jesus didn't invite Mary and Cleopas into their own house so that he could observe the Holy Eucharist. Their eyes were opened at a common dinner table a place where they ate every day. This isn't lab work and dissection. This is real life. This declares that every event can become a sacred occasion 
when we share our bread with a stranger or we sit down to a table for a meal. Luke is telling us, open your eyes, expect the unexpected in ordinary places. That's where you'll find the resurrected one. Now, it's easy to say, but it's really difficult to walk out because our expectations, our understanding, our tradition, there's so many things that can block our vision. Luke's solution, step into the story. Stand under it. Become subject to redefinition. Remember your expectations and lay them open to new information and new revelation. For Mary and Cleopas, a resurrected Jesus walking along the road, guiding their scriptural interpretation and dining with them was not what they expected of their nephew. I mean, they flat out told him that much. These two told the Jesus they didn't recognize about Jesus. They said to Jesus, we hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. I mean, could this be more tragically ironic? I know Peter usually gets the nod for being the champion of putting his foot in his mouth with Jesus, but come on. I think Mary and Cleopas might have gotten all four feet in their mouths here. They told Jesus about their bad ideas about Jesus while failing to recognize Jesus. Peter probably heard this story the first time and said, finally, some real competition. It's not just me. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. They missed it completely. I've done that. I have been there. Completely missing it, that's my jam. That's what I do. N.T. Wright describes Mary and Cleopas by saying they, like everyone else in Israel, have been reading the story through the wrong end of the telescope. That's the perfect metaphor, in my opinion. Turning the telescope or binoculars around and taking our vision from the big down to the small. I do that. I get super focused on the specific and I miss the big picture. I trade my telescope for a microscope. I dissect. I settle for dead birds in a pan in a lab. And when I do that... When I miss the space and avoid the wonder, when I go around the unexplained weirdness, what do I give up? I think Luke would say that I give up a chance to glimpse the divine. Space is created by wonder, and that unexplained weirdness invites us into the story. As we enter in our experiences, our smaller stories, our eyes to see are opened to glimpses of what God is up to. So what glimpse did Mary and Cleopas behold? What did they see? What's the bigger story that they glimpsed? Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that invites us in from the third chapter of Genesis. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And again from the Emmaus Road in the 24th chapter of Luke, When 
when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? They didn't waste a minute. They were up and back on their way to Jerusalem. Can we catch a glimpse? Can we step into the large story that Luke is inviting us to join? Into the first meal of the Bible in the garden right here. The moment is heavy with significance. The woman took some of the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband. And he ate it and then their eyes opened. N.T. Wright says this had been told over and over, this story. It was the beginning of all the suffering that had come upon humanity. Death itself is traced back to this eye-opening moment. The whole creation is subject to decay and futility and sorrow. Then in Luke's spacious story, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened to the first meal of a new creation. A creation where death and decay and futility and sorrow aren't the last word. A creation where all our suffering and all our unmet expectations can be renewed and restored. The telescope gets turned right way around as their eyes are open and they catch a glimpse of a God who cannot be contained by death or our expectations. We, just like Mary and Cleopas, are invited to step into this story, walk along the common everyday path, wrestle with the living story of God, partake in every meal as a sacred remembrance, and awaken to a new creation. God's bigger story. Space is created by wonder, and that unexplained weirdness invites us into the story. As we enter in, our experiences, our smaller stories, our eyes to see, are open to glimpses of what God is up to as our hearts burn within. Now we know. Not just in our heads, but in our heart. Not just in the laboratory, but in the wild. We feel it. We experientially know. Two couples. Adam and Eve. Cleopas and Mary. Both couples experienced God. Both couples walked with God. Both couples received love and guidance from God. And both couples had a meal. Luke invites us into all of that. But Luke also invites us into the space between these two couples. Adam and Eve did not invite God to their meal. Cleopas and Mary insisted that Jesus stay and eat, even though he tried to keep walking. Adam and Eve served themselves. Cleopas and Mary were served by God, their guest who became their host. After serving themselves, Adam and Eve had their eyes opened to themselves, and they were ashamed. After being served by God, Cleopas and Mary had their eyes open to God's new creation, and their hearts burned within them. 
With their opened eyes, Adam and Eve sewed clothes for themselves. Cleopas and Mary, with their opened eyes, they jumped up and ran all the way back to Jerusalem to share what they now knew with others. The space between these two couples, just like all the other spaces of wonder in this story, is a space for us. This is where we bring our story into this story. We walk with God even when we don't recognize it. We receive instruction and interpretation and revelation. We have our expectations confronted. We share a meal. Can we stay present to the divine in our lives? Will we have opened eyes to the miraculous that is all around us? Will we step into the spaces of wonder and unexplained weirdness? Will we come back together and break bread and share our stories with others? And when we find ourselves simply walking through life, will we still feel the burning in our hearts? The word Emmaus, by the way, is thought to be a Greek version of the Hebraic name Hamath, which comes from the Hebraic root Hamam, which means warm. The road to Emmaus is literally the path to warmth, the path of burning hearts. May we all walk the path daily, surrendering our expectations, inviting the stranger to stay and dine, stepping into the space of wonder and opened eyes. And in doing so, may our hearts be strangely warmed. May our hearts burn within us and send us back out on the path again. Let's pray. Risen Christ, walk with us this day. Be our companion and guide. Be our teacher and friend. Be our host and servant. Bringing your gifts of faith, peace, and hope, and deep joy as always. Amen.